Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. We know all too well what Russia's invasion is doing to Ukraine, the catastrophic loss of lives, the physical devastation and also the national resolve to fight back. But what is the war doing to Russia? What we are now seeing is a Russian armed forces that's probably low on its munitions. You don't take casualty rates like he is taking uh, and recover from it quickly. You know, at the end of this, whatever happens, Putin is going to end up with an army that is exhausted with a very poor reputation for Russian equipment. We'll assess the UK's latest claim that Russia's military is now significantly weaker. We know that Russia's economy has been weakened, but how big is the financial hit? And how could that affect the Kremlin's special military operation? It probably would not be able to continue much longer than just a few more months. It's not a matter of funding, though. It is just a matter of it having the physical resources to do it. President Putin's actions may have convinced another of Russia's neighbours to join NATO. We'll hear from Finland, where British troops and tanks are on exercise. And what of the political consequences? Could it all end in a palace coup at the Kremlin? The loss of senior officers certainly will have an impact, but it'll be, um, for the time being, quite a hidden impact. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrap. May the 9th is a big day in Russia's calendar. Victory Day, a national holiday that marks the end of the Great Patriotic War, or as we call it, World War II in Europe. There will be, as always, a huge military parade through Moscow. And Western wisdom has it that President Putin wants to declare some kind of victory in Ukraine to give Russians something to celebrate. The Western narrative is, of course, very different. At one level, Putin's already lost. I'm not sure what he's going to celebrate other than being isolated. We're seeing that when it comes to Russia's war aims, Russia is failing, Ukraine is succeeding. You have exploded the myth of Putin's invincibility. The so-called irresistible force of Putin's war machine has broken on the immovable object of Ukrainian patriotism and love of country. This is Ukraine's finest hour. But the truth is neither side can declare anywhere close to victory or offer any certainty on how this war will end. It is clear, though, that 10 weeks of war has not been without consequences for Russia, its economy, its people and its military. Well, with us to help assess those consequences and how they may affect the outcome, Emily Ferris, Research Fellow and Specialist in Russia at the defence think tank RUSI. Uh, Emily, before we look at how this war is affecting Russia, a victory day. Some observers are wondering if President Putin has a military plan lined up, a big push in the next few days to declare as a success on May the 9th. How likely do you think that is? Well, I think I'm probably of the view that it, it's not as likely as maybe some Western observers think. Obviously, the 9th of May is hugely symbolic as a point at which the Russians defeated Nazism in 1945. There's obvious parallels to the way that the Russians have framed this war with Ukraine as this kind of you know, defeat of, of, of neo-fascism. 
But in terms of, of victories or even mobilization, even if um, Putin were to announce some kind of mobilization, you wouldn't see any kind of immediate impact on that, on the war, because you'd need to then train those people, you'd need to recruit them. And I think that it wouldn't be uh, such a, a straightforward exercise that you'd then see some kind of uh, enormous push into Ukrainian territory. What, what might be most likely um, is that Russia will start to implement some of its political plans for the southern parts of Ukraine. So that would be places like Kherson, which uh, Russia has taken over, uh, where they've already started doing things like using the Russian ruble. Obviously, that will be quite challenging given their different banking systems, different currencies in use at the moment. Um, but I think that might be an opportunity for Russia to announce sort of a formalization of those regions. So whether they would recognize them like the DNR and the LNR, um, whether they would annex, annex it as um, a Russian mm. territory, whether they'd view it as independent statelets, I think that might be something that people could rally around. Emily, stay with us. Well, let's dig now into the effect this war has had on Russia's military. Tuesday's tweets from the UK Defence Intelligence said Russia's military is now significantly weaker as a result of its invasion of Ukraine. It continues, this will have a lasting impact on Russia's ability to deploy conventional military force. But in the midst of an ongoing war, can we really tell the difference between a long-term weakening of Russia's military and the expected attrition of a battlefield? Sam Cranny evans is a research analyst at RUSI. The big question really is the accurate casualty figures, which, you know, the Ukrainian military sort of places in excess of 20,000 and things like that. And I think if we consider if, if just half of that number was accurate, those would be really significant losses for the Russian military. And the reason for that is that, uh, you know, over the past uh, 14 years, the Russians have been trying to move towards a much more professional force focused around uh, contract soldiers who serve for much longer periods of time than conscripts. And so what those losses actually represent is a loss of investment in training and maintaining those personnel, a loss of experience and capability, which is really hard to replace. And so the problem for the Russian forces really is that if the, the best and the brightest of the Russian armed forces were committed in the opening phases and a significant proportion of those have been killed or, or wounded, it's that loss of experience and capability that the Russians will have to work hard to replace. And what about equipment, military hardware? Yeah, the, the military hardware question is a bit of a, a challenging one because some of the figures the Ukrainians have released are definitely questionable. Some of the figures collected by other sources are providing a good benchmark but don't cover the full picture. Uh, it's very common in conflicts, uh, we've seen this in Nagorno-Karabakh, for instance, for damaged tanks to be withdrawn from the battlefield, repaired and returned. So the big question really is what quantity of Russia's equipment that has been destroyed or damaged or captured is damaged or captured beyond return to Russian service? And that's something that we don't really know. The bigger question is how much the expenditure of Russia's precision-guided munitions, its missiles like Iskander, the KH-101, how many of those have been expended and what capabilities do they have to replace them? Because we do know that Western components are used in a lot of them and the sanctions could potentially destabilise the ability of Russia to actually replace those capabilities uh, for a long period of time. The UK government says that Russia's military is now significantly weaker, both materially and conceptually. Uh, let's start with materially. Is that assessment fair or can Russia keep generating the military capability, do you think? 
I think it would be weaker in the short term, especially in regards to those cruise missiles and, and ballistic missiles that have been used up in this conflict. I think that given the the relatively modest capabilities of Russia's armoured vehicles and things like that, that it could find a way to replace them. Really, the, the loss of capability depends on the angle that you take and, and who you are. You know, how do the Russians feel that they have lost capability is perhaps a different question to whether or not the UK MOD feels that the Russians have lost capability. And what about the claim Russia's military is conceptually weaker, the suggestion effectively that Russia's military plans and concepts have been shown to be not fit for purpose? There's certainly some of them. Uh, some of the Russian concepts have been shown to not work. So one of them that we know of is this theory of paralysis, which is where the Russians felt that if you hit enough of a country's critical national infrastructure in the opening phases of a conflict, it might paralyze them and prevent them from being able to respond. And that's certainly what Russia tried to do in Ukraine, and it didn't achieve that for a number of reasons. It is a fact of war that militaries take losses and risk becoming less capable. We, we shouldn't ignore the fact that applies to Ukraine too. How does the effect on Ukraine's capability compare? So we really don't know what's happened to the Ukrainian forces. We don't have a great picture of what state the Ukrainian forces were in before February the 24th. And we have an even less clear picture of what state they're in now. I think we can look at certain elements like the Ukrainian government agreeing to allow the territorial defence forces to move outside of their areas. And that may suggest that, you know, they are concerned about the state of the forces in the east. Their requests for equipment from the West have become increasingly, not desperate, but, you know, they are pushing those requests hard. And that perhaps indicates that they have lost a lot of equipment as well, that they have suffered attrition that they can't replace. Uh, the, the, the final thing to consider is the damage that's been done to the Ukrainian defence industry by the Russian cruise missiles and ballistic missile strikes. It may mean that actually Ukraine isn't in a position to replace the military capabilities it's lost, whereas Russia actually sits on a lot of uh, domestic defence manufacturing capability and providing it can get the resources, it can continue building the equipment it needs. Military sciences research analyst Sam Cranny Evans. Um, Emily Ferris, Sam thinks the biggest impact on Russia's military capability could be the loss of thousands of trained personnel. If we go back to that speculation about what Vladimir Putin might announce on Victory Day, those suggestions he could announce a military mobilisation, call-ups for thousands of Russians, do you think that would make much difference? Well, I think this is this is a really interesting question because, um, as my colleague was saying, um, when it comes to the best and the brightest of the Russian military, a lot of those forces have already been sort of expunged at the front. So the problem is now trying to persuade people to enlist. And the problem is um, that the soldiers that are returning from the front have come back with stories about how difficult it is. And especially in the rural areas and the countryside, it's going to be really difficult to try to recruit people who are of the right age without an enormous brain drain. And you can see that um, Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin has taken measures to stop this brain drain, because obviously when the war started, a lot of middle class educated Russians um, immediately left for countries like Turkey and Armenia and Israel uh, to try to avoid the draft. And the Prime Minister's introduced laws that exempt people like IT specialists, 
those with qualifications in mathematics and sciences to avoid the draft because they're conscious that they're losing uh, this middle-class educated part of Russian society. I don't know that this is going to be particularly decisive in terms of the war. Um, you know, what what you need are skilled officers um, and the kinds of people that, that Russia is going to be recruiting now are certainly not that. Mm. Well, it's not just the Russian military machine that has taken a significant hit from the invasion of Ukraine. Its economy has too. Prices have spiked with Russian inflation around double what we're experiencing in the UK. The EU's decision to ban Russian oil imports by the end of the year will hit Europe's economies, but could deprive Russia of half its oil revenues. So how bad is it for Moscow? Economics professor Michael Alexeev moved from Russia to the US as a child. He now specializes in the Russian economy at Indiana University. Well, so far, the effect is not huge. There was a big drop in the ruble initially, but the Russian central bank uh, took action. And uh, now the ruble actually is back to the same exchange rate it was before the invasion. And there was also some panic buying here and there initially. But right now, right now, the effect isn't great, but it will surely be very, very significant in a month or two and probably much more by the end of the year or even maybe early fall. Uh, But right now there are some shortages, some medicines. And so, as I said, so some panic buying, the main impact so far has been very significant inflation. Mm. And how does this economic situation now, what you expect to happen, compare with economic shocks suffered by Russia or indeed the Soviet Union? This is a very different kind of a shock. In terms of the aggregate numbers, uh, the projections are that the Russian GDP this year might fall by 10 to 15 percent. And those are the kinds of falls in GDP they experienced in early 90s. But this is, again, a very different kind of a crisis. Uh, They will suffer from the lack of spare parts, uh, there will be enterprises stopping production and all that. And I guess the main difference is that then the Soviet Union before and Russia, it was relatively poor and it was not as plugged into the global economy. So now what will happen, the links, myriad of links that the Russian economy has with other economies in the world, are being severed. And on a practical level, how long can Russia keep going under the kind of economic pressures it's going to be experiencing? It can go on for quite a long time. Look, North Korea, Cuba, Iran, they managed to survive for quite some time. The difference, however, is that Russia, again, is much more plugged into the global economy than those countries have been. But Russia has enough land and resources so that nobody is going to go hungry there, or at least most people won't. But it will be a severe drop in the standard of living. And it all depends on uh, how the population is going to react and the level of repression that the government is going to be willing to engage in. Mm, History tells us, though, that Russian and indeed pretty much all leaders are more vulnerable when their citizens are facing hard times. How bad do you judge the financial hit for ordinary Russians to be at the moment? Right now, again, 
it's not very large. It's mainly due to the inflation. It has clearly caused a drop in the standard of living right now, but not very large and probably mostly for the poorer people. Mm. But I would say by the end of the year, it will be at least at least 10 to 15 percent. I asked you earlier how long Russia can keep going under the kinds of economic pressures it's going to be facing. How long do you think it's going to be able to fund its war effort? Yes, that's a good question. It probably would not be able to continue its war effort much longer than just a few more months. It's not a matter of funding, though. It's not a matter of funding. It is just a matter of it having the resources, the physical resources to do it. Professor Michael Alexeev, Emily, this point has come up twice now. Russia's military capability needs specific physical resources to keep regenerating its capability. How constrained is it in getting what it needs right now? Some of this question goes back to the impact of sanctions. They're mostly squeezing the Russian middle class, who are much more educated and sometimes in a way a little bit more Western-leaning, are the ones that are actually being squeezed a little bit more. And that not doesn't necessarily help in terms of regime change, which is, I think, um, what what President Biden has alluded to um, might be the aim of the sanctions in the longer term. But when it comes to Russia's military capabilities, well, the physical resources that it needs are mostly within Russia, to be honest, and also in Belarus. Belarus is responsible for a lot of the uh, construction of Russian military vehicles. There are sort of pretty much open borders between those two countries. So in terms of those resources, it's not particularly challenging, I think. In terms of Russia getting what it needs right now, its supply lines are extremely stretched. Um, and mm. that is because it's trying to tackle an extremely large geographic area. And that means that the supply lines, the ability to funnel fuel, new personnel, infrastructure, all of these things to the front line is really difficult. And the fact that Russia has been unable to control any of the railway hubs in Ukraine has made that especially challenging. Well, Michael Alexey mentioned the potential political impact as Russians have their standards of living squeezed. Two weeks before the invasion, we spoke on BFBS SITREP to the journalist Mary Dijevsky, who spent many years reporting from Moscow about the potential political cost of invading Ukraine. I don't think Putin has the slightest illusion about the cost of Russia getting involved in a war in Ukraine, that a war would be unpopular in in Russia, incredibly unpopular if there were casualties. And I, I really don't think that Putin as leader could survive a messy war in Ukraine. And Mary is with us once more. Mary, three months on, a lot has happened. How is Vladimir Putin's position looking now? Can he survive as Russia's president? It's actually incredibly hard to judge what Putin's position currently is, because we see the various pictures and the official statements out of the Kremlin. And Putin looks incredibly isolated. It's true that when you look at what appears to be the mood of the Russian people, if you can talk about something as uh, as sort of general and universal as that, it would appear that so far Putin and the Kremlin have managed to keep public opinion or enough of public opinion 
on board so that there haven't been popular protests. But my point actually was never about popular protests. What I was talking about was the risk of Putin facing opposition within the Kremlin, you know, the theory of palace coup or whatever, and also the timescale, the idea that it would be, you know, today or tomorrow. This also, I think, was never on the cards and never something that uh, I, I, I would have implied. So I think we may be, we may be quite a while away way um, from seeing the fallout in the Kremlin. But it is true that so far, Putin and the people at the top in Russia seem to have contained the initial street protests, and they've played the patriotism card. Mm. The, the losses that Russia has suffered on the battlefield, including a significant number of senior officers, that hurts the people of the military. And we hear these stories, these reports of bodies being taken away under the darkness of night to hide the true figures. How, how much of a political impact will that hurt have inside the Kremlin, do you think? The loss of senior officers certainly will have an impact, but it'll be um, for the time being quite a hidden impact because, you know, those people are part of the top establishment. So again, I think we're talking maybe about a delayed effect. Where I'm, I have to admit to being slightly surprised is that when you look back at the Soviet involvement in Afghanistan and the two Chechen wars, even Russia's involvement in Syria, there was quite a groundswell of opinion against Russian involvement in those wars. Um, mm. You can even argue that really what was essentially a defeat in Afghanistan was a contributory factor to the fall of the Soviet Union in that you had returning defeated troops, disillusioned, large casualties, and you had the very um, forceful and emotive movement by the soldiers' mothers. And the soldiers' mothers group is, is still in existence and it still has a lot of influence or you know it would do if they seem to be more prominent than they've actually been during this conflict and this I I find quite surprising because you know Ukraine a lot of Russians have relatives friends in Ukraine people traveled across what was essentially quite an open border and the idea that there is so relatively little opposition at the grassroots level, the fact that you know, soldiers' mothers' groups all over Russia have not been out there or have been silenced, that's quite surprising to me because you would have you, you would have expected a war in Ukraine to be just as unpopular as those other um, engagements that I've mentioned. Mary Dijewski, uh, Emily Ferris, you spent years following Russian politics. The question for the West is, if Putin were to go, what would follow him? Would it be a regime we prefer or one even more at odds with NATO? Well, this is the ultimate question, isn't it? Um, what sort of person might replace him? This will need to be somebody who has the ear of the security services, of course, given how powerful they are. Um, this will need to be someone probably with some sort of military or intelligence background, somebody that's also able to keep the oligarchs in line and the uh, major players in the energy industry. Um, and so there are plenty of people that come to mind that might fit that bill. But the question of whether that's going to be a regime that would be interested in engagement with the West in a constructive way, I'm not so sure, because we're talking about a collective mindset. Obviously, Putin has created the kind of 
atmosphere in Russian politics that has allowed and is permissive to corruption, to um, a lack of accountability. But we're also talking about a mindset that goes back to Soviet times. And so if you have an individual that is from similar stock, who has grown up in that era, I, I don't see how you would... Uh, have somebody that would be interested in fundamentally changing the course of Russian political progress. And so that means, unfortunately, I don't see how they would be particularly amenable to improving relations with NATO. Well, let's finish our look at the effect of the Ukraine war on Russia with the unintended consequences. President Putin wanted NATO to pull back from Russian borders and stop any new entries. It looks like he's getting the reverse, unintended but also unsurprising. NATO has stepped up its exercising in Eastern Europe and in the next few weeks, Sweden and Finland could apply to join, ending their very long histories of non-alignment. More than 100 soldiers from the Queen's Will Hussars are in Finland right now taking part in the multinational exercise Arrow 22. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace visited them on Wednesday, 150 miles northwest of Helsinki. Our freedoms are often underpinned by the security that defence provides and therefore you have to exercise and prove it and test it and improve it as a result. And so coming here with a country that's historically been neutral is a, is a strong message, not, not just to, to Russia, but to you know, our other friends, that Britain is you know, one of the lead security nations in Europe, if not one of the biggest. And therefore, you know, part of that obligation we have is using our power to convene, work together, develop alliances and improve both of how we operate at battle space, really. And what about uh, Finland joining NATO? Is that something that you see is going to happen and, and how quickly? I think I'm not going to answer questions <laughs> on Finnish politics. I think what I would simply say is, you know, Britain stand by uh, help, uh, Finland having the freedom to make that choice. That is more important than what they do with the choice. And I think, uh, you know, we saw uh, last year as Russia threatened uh, Finland with, you know, what it does with its choices, the Finnish president made a very bold statement at New Year about saying, you know, it's our right to choose, no one else's. And I think Britain supports that right. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, he was talking to BFBS reporter Claire Sadler, who joins us from Finland. Uh, Claire, just tell us more about the joint exercise you've been watching. Well, this exercise is taking place on the Poyankangas Ninisalo training area. Imagine lots of woodland, which Finland is famous for, as well as big, wide, open areas. Nearly 3,500 troops taking part in 700 vehicles. The UK, Latvia, Estonia and the US They are the foreign forces that are taking part. But the UK is the biggest contingent. 120 troops and 14 uh, Challenger 2 tanks are here taking part in the exercise. It's still got uh, sort of a week to run. Now, these troops are split into teams and they challenge each other uh, on this area in combat situations. So it's noisy, lots of firing, high speed driving around. So this exercise, um, which is big, it's bold, is delivering a clear message to adversaries uh, and particularly Russia. Look at what we can do. uh, Look how we work together. And on this question of Finland joining NATO, were you able to get any sense from the Finnish officers of their view on that idea or are they keeping a diplomatic silence on the question? Well, it was quite interesting talking to um, some of those Finnish 
troops. Uh, unlike when we talk to ours, they aren't really allowed to talk about politics. But uh, the one of the Finnish soldiers I spoke to was quite happy to be quite open about this. And what he was saying was that while Finland's done really well at remaining neutral, these events that are taking place in Ukraine have changed the way that people are feeling. Because of course, if we look at the history, it's not actually that long ago that Finland was subject to an invasion by Soviet forces. It was 1939, the Winter War, and um, they lost 11% of their land when they got invaded. Uh, and the border had to move westward. So if you look at that in comparison with what's going on in Ukraine, you can draw some really similar parallels. And he said that, that uh, people in the country are really thinking about that. And it isn't something that they can really ignore. So he was in favour. And he said that many people really now that feel, feel now is the right time to join NATO. So when will Finland actually decide whether or not it wants to join NATO? Uh, well, I'm not actually sure, and I'm not sure that anybody really knows the answer to that either. The Finnish defence minister, when he gave a press con conference yesterday, him, he said he didn't know either. There have been reports that May the 12th could be the date, um, but I think that is, is still something that's open. Claire Sadler in Finland for BFBS SITREP. Emily Ferris, if Finland does join NATO, that would extend Russia's border with the alliance by 800 miles. President Putin certainly wouldn't like it. But if it does happen, will he do anything? Well, uh, he's already threatened to. So one of the options he's threatened is some sort of military escalation, which um, I don't personally believe that he will do. And I don't think many in Finland do either, um, if we can take some of the senior command in, in Finland's responses um, to be true. Um, the other thing that he might do and that he's also threatened to do is potentially to move some nuclear infrastructure to Kaliningrad, um, its exclave near the Baltic states. Um, but by uh, quite a few accounts, especially from Lithuania, Russia has already done that. So Russia seems to have quite a limited ability to respond. And as we've seen, Russia is quite diplomatically isolated at the moment. It has very few allies. And Finland mm. is one of the last countries who is at least not harboured a huge amount of animosity towards Russia, if we can put it in those terms. Um, so I think that's why we might see Putin reacting with um, a little bit more caution than usual. Emily Ferris, good to have your thoughts today. Thank you so much for your time. That is all for now. My thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And you can catch up with past programmes on the website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>